Welcome to episode 76 of The People on Kechung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. On this episode, our guests are Rachel Roski and Dustin Metz. Rachel Roski is a painter who lives and works in Los Angeles. She recently had a show at Elephant Art Gallery here in LA, and she teaches drawing at Otis College of Art and Design. I guess I've never been uh, very good at or interested in like inventing stories or narratives. I'm more interested in abstraction, but I'm also a painter. I have to have something in front of me to paint. Dustin Metz is a painter living and working in Los Angeles. He's a co-founder of the artist-run gallery Miss Barbers that was in operation from 2015 to 2017. He was also recently in a two-person show at Parker Gallery in Los Feliz. It's like the longer that I paint, it was easier to surprise myself earlier on. So the longer that I paint, it's harder to surprise myself, and it's now I'm even questioning the surprising of myself. At the end of the show, we're going to go out with a grip of tracks from L.A. band Scubs. And just for a second, I want to take a moment to tell you about a show that we have up at General Projects Gallery in Lincoln Heights. The show is Joel Kayak, I Am the Present. We're open Thursday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find out more info about the show how to get there, etc. at insertblancpress.net by clicking on General Projects at the top of the page. And you all know that The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. You also know that it's like a broken record that's been magically repaired. Rachel Rotsky and Dustin Metz, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Hey. So you're both painters, and uh, first, for The People, you both brought paintings to the recording. I kind of was thinking when when Rachel asked me first, uh, we did some studio visits and it came about from a bad studio visit I had a few uh, years ago where I didn't have much in the studio, but I had to have a studio visit because I was at a, a residency and it was the worst. Skowhegan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he doesn't want to brag about it. No, <laughs> no I mean, the, the program was great, but that studio visit was terrible because I have trouble articulating what is what I'm thinking about in the paintings when they're not in front of me. So they become kind of a safety blanket to a conversation in my mind. Yeah, and I think we're both different kind of painter. Or maybe it's like rather somewhat unusual nowadays where you have... I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a reason I feel something that I feel that we have in common, which is um, being artists where it's very much about the painting, what's happening physically and visually, as opposed to like a long story or a lot of information or a narrative or something you can explain that's fascinating, like that's like behind the work. Right. So, yeah. And I'm, I feel the same way about talking about my work in the abstract as pretty difficult so it's just I love this idea that Dustin had to like bring in the paintings like and we each picked um a painting like this was also Dustin's great idea of like picking a painting that we wanted to have the other bring in and why why did you these two paintings that are sitting on the table why did you bring these two in aside you know from the size so they'll actually fit on the table (laughs) I did a studio visit recently with Dustin and happened to take a couple snapshots of uh, of the work and and then I just was looking at those and thinking about which one I wanted to talk about and chose 
this one because I'm in love with this painting. I think it's like one of my favorites, but I was also trying to choose a smaller piece. This particular one is an isolated singular object and kind of like a non-composition. It's just plopped in the middle of the canvas. Funny that you're not saying that it's a lemon in the middle. You keep saying it's <laughs> oh, an I, object. Oh, am I the description part? Okay. Yeah, sure. So I'm looking it. at a painting. It, it's a painting of a lemon that's sliced open and the flat side is facing out and um, this really interesting thing is happening where uh, the paint is actually built up around the lemon. And so the lemon itself feels it feels like it's carved out of the surface of the painting, the part that's, you know, the half um, cut open half of the lemon surface. Um, so it's a black background with just these tinges of yellow peeking through mainly on the corners of the painting and then this this sliced vertically half of a lemon well facing let's, us. let's go back to back dustin describe rachel's painting for us and then and then maybe you guys could talk about like what that thing about the physicality of the object like why that's so important to you yeah so i'm looking at a uh, rectangular painting in a portrait orientation with it's a background of purple with a single object in the middle, and it looks like it might be uh, a worn away stone or maybe a piece of soap or, you know, not really sure what the object is. I get can, eraser a lot. Yeah, you can, it's, it feels organic in a sense that how it was shaped. It's, it's funny. This is what I really love about Rachel's paintings are. Um, it's you can tell that they're they're just looked at so closely, like the object and the painting. But I, I mean, I think a lot of people would describe these as minimal. Like they might put it in a minimalist place, but they're really not. They're maximalist um, in in how you're looking and what you're looking at, and it just happens to be one thing on top of one thing. But then you're you're just opening up that whole. Uh, looking into just like that's all you need um and I, the reason why i asked you when i pointed out the fact that you weren't calling it a lemon is it's because of something that you had said in your press release that i read how you're like these objects are a way to portray objects that at once can be understood physically but not narratively symbolically not narratively or symbolically uh this is not intended to be a coy but portray a thing that quickly frustrates the process of naming in order to privilege the phys physical, visual, and poetic qualities of perceived reality, i.e. color, space, shadow, light. So, yeah, I, I was just was wondering about how you got to that. It's kind of a return to some work that I was making in grad school and before, which is um, finding these like slices of life experiences that were taken out of context or cropped in a way that you couldn't really tell what you were looking at. And so I kind of, with this body of work, I wanted to return to, I found myself returning for various reasons to that way of working, of painting from observation things that are not exactly recognizable as I guess I've never been uh, very good at or interested in um, inventing, like inventing stories or narratives. I'm more interested in abstraction, but I'm also a painter. I have to have something in front of me to paint. So it's this kind of necessity. Um, so I started 
going back to this way of working of something in front of me from life. I yeah. mean, with this painting, and I think from this uh, collection of paintings that were at Elephant, there's something that you do that's very interesting where um, there's a dimensionality that um, it seems very, um, you know, 3D and 2D at the same time. It kind of throws the viewer off a little bit. Like, I can't tell at what angle I am looking at this object. And that's that gets to this kind of abstraction in the work, which is which I find fascinating with Dustin's piece, which is doing kind of a similar thing, but in a completely different technical way. Um, not to get too nerdy about painting, but reaching abstraction through these these different methods I find very interesting in both your work, really. Yeah, I think we're nerdy painters. Oh, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm always down to nerd out on painting. Um, and it, while you were talking about that, I was thinking too is, one of the reasons why I think we're excited about bringing the paintings in and having them to talk about is goes really in line with how you're you're making the or how you're talking about your paintings in terms of uh, the the paintings. Like if we didn't have the paintings here, we would be conjuring up images of the paintings, but in the way that we see them in terms of like oh, these are about this. Like, this is what I really like about this painting and or these this group of paintings. Um, and with you and with this painting that I'm looking at and the body work at Elephant, um, you're constantly, like, smacking the viewer awake or something. You know, you're, you're constantly, um, like, being like, no, this is, this, is, this is what you're looking at right now. You know, so while I picked this painting because slightly because it was... Um, related to the one that you picked, but also it was one of my favorites in the show because it just kept waking me up to being aware of looking, of looking at you painting this thing, of looking at you looking at this thing. And it does take you away from what the thing is of, which yes. would happen if we were just talking about our paintings without them in front of us, or even, you know, on social media, you know, it's like, you, you oh. just don't see this at all. Absolutely. And I feel like, yeah, there's there's things about this painting that you definitely would not see in a reproduction. I guess that's maybe partly why I'm drawn to it. Like the fact that uh, the way the surface is built up. I mean, there's really, I don't know how you would photograph that. Like a, I started heavy? taking videos of them. I guess I just, I love the paradox in this painting. The fact that it's uh, cut open and then the flat side is the part that faces us. And so unlike most still life paintings in the entire history of painting of fruit that are three all about the three-dimensional like form of the piece of fruit, this one is like splayed open, um, the flat sides are facing us, yet that's the, you know, so it's subverting the three-dimensionality, the illusionism, which is another thing, I guess, a question I had for you is about um, how you're, I think with all of your work, there's this subversion of verisimilitude. Um, what guess, does that mean? Yeah. So to okay, <laughs> to throw out another layer of reference here, I've been reading this uh, Merlin James book that Dustin lent me. Um, that I'd never heard of this painter, Merlin James, embarrassingly. But uh, a lot of the things that were mentioned with regard to his work, I thought, oh, that's completely describes Dustin's work. So. When I've read in a quote here, uh, one of the things I read was 
Seemingly, one of Merlin James's intentions is to subvert the ideals of verisimilitude, photographic or otherwise, which dates back to the 19th century French painting. Um, this is like a John Yao uh, review. And I'm just curious, like, if you think of that yourself in the same way, and then how do you think about realism in your work? Like, are you, like, there's just a lot of funny things happening like are you consciously making incorrect angles or wonky perspective and I mean this painting is maybe doesn't fit into that category but um or not aiming for any or I don't know are you are you skeptical or cynical about the idea of realism and then just how things are portrayed like I notice a different kind of realism here that's kind of a paradox or a contradiction the fact that the surface of this lemon is one of the most quote, what my term that my students would use, detailed um, <laughs> surface, but compared to your other paintings, um, but there's these different vocabularies that happen. Like um, Dustin has a painting of a stool with a little scene underneath, underneath the stool um, where that's like a different language of painting, like a kind of sketched planar painting. And then in other paintings, it's this kind of slower, um, a little bit awkward, kind of, it always reminds me of Bonard um, type of more like I see Dustin's hand at play, but then there's different, these different types of never quite precise realism. Yeah, I think with my with my paintings, I'm, I'm constantly questioning myself while I'm in the painting and you know, it's it's really hard for me to start a painting because I'm always like I don't I don't know what to start with, um, because I need something to kind of fight against or push against. So um, in this painting, it was it was um, it came from I think it came from another painting where I was I ended up painting a cut open lemon and building up the surface around it. This idea of the the thing that should be closest to your face is the furthest away from you on the surface of the painting. Um, I had a, a friend who did a studio visit with me recently. She asked me, uh, what kind of artist are you most afraid of becoming? You know, and I feel it was such a good question. And mm -hmm. it was, it was really easy to answer. And that's a, an artist that's unaware of himself, you know, that's just kind of autopilot or something. Mm -hmm. And in that is, is a, a way of how I'm working, you know? So yeah. I'm always kind of, as soon as I get to a certain place in the painting, I want to put in the opposite in the painting as right. a way of pushing against the thing that I'm making, but also aware that inside that rectangular square space of the painting, there's a logic. And the logic is, is kind of the this, this stuff that's holding it all together. You know, kind of like there's a, like physics is the logic of the world we live in. Painting has a different kind of logic. It's, it can be whatever you make it. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can hear us on K-Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Yes, we also am. have an Instagram. It's the underscore people underscore radio. So go there. Go there and uh, like, like some stuff like if you some want. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get back to our conversation right now uh, with Rachel Roski and Dustin Metz. So another uh, Merlin James 
you know, the writing about this Merlin James in the Merlin James book that made me think of your work is related to a question I had. Um, so one one reviewer said, or one of the articles about him said, you know, that you can't set out to make a painting without questioning every aspect of the process. And then separately, no two paintings are made the same way. And I know that you're wary of series as I am, like somewhat, like, you know, anything resembling something formulaic. You know, I get this feeling that to some extent you're reinventing the wheel with every single painting. And so I'm curious what that looks like, like how you start a painting. Is it, you know, does the object come first or the idea or? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it depends on when you ask me. So in terms of like time in the studio. So right now it's harder to start a painting um, just because I'm I'm like almost too inside my own head. Um, so then that, that looks like me just sitting and on my phone too much and kind of avoiding the process, um, which I'm starting to get past. But to answer your question, um, how do I start a painting? It it's easiest when I'm going from painting to painting. So when I when I have something going and I'm like, oh, this will be good in this different way, or I want to make another one, you know, with the fruit, it keeps popping up because I, I made a, you know, I guess my first fruit painting, it was probably a few years ago, and it, it was kind of a thing where, you know, whenever I have, a, um, whenever I'm working with new subject matter, it feels like a one-off and then sometimes it will show itself as something that I can use again or, or even just a a kind of a dare to myself, like, Oh, how would you do that again? You know, like you think this is a one-off, but like, how would you make another lemon painting? It'd still be interesting. Um, right. So, yeah, I don't know if that totally answers your question on, on how do I start a painting, but it's, it's a battle. <laughs> it's yeah. a real, I hate starting paintings. So what is it about that trying to start over every time that appeals to you? I mean, it it doesn't appeal to me in the sense that um, that's what I'm going for. That's just where I kind of find myself. And because I, I think it is an accurate assessment of my work. Um, and it's just that constant kind of like reassessing while I'm making this stuff. Like it might be a lot more productive for me to kind of quiet my mind and just pump out things and see what happens. But it really is trying to get to that place where you're making something and you're like, whoa, what the hell is this? You know, and it might not be like, what the hell is this? I made a new, you know, image of something. I made something abstract, but more like this is surprising to me and trying to figure out why it's surprising. Not because it's like the longer that I paint, it was easier to surprise myself earlier on. So the longer that I paint, it's harder to surprise myself. And it's now I'm even questioning the surprising of myself. Right. So it's, it's really, um, and that's where, you know, you were asking about realism before. Um, that's where I kind of float in and out of that. That's where I can, if I feel like I'm getting too far away from, if I'm trying to surprise myself more in the materiality of the paint that I'm using, whether it be like pouring certain things on it or you know, different colors that might not go together, um, I'll, I'll start to draw again, or I'll start to work from observation because that can surprise myself sometimes when I'm like thinking too much about, 
oh, this is a painting that's about this, and it's about this and this and this. It's like I have to go back to the strangeness of right. the world and the strangeness of, like, me sitting in front of this lemon that's, you know, starting to dry up yes. and having to paint it quickly. And it's kind of, it gets to your paintings a lot, you know, in that totally. in that sense. And another thing that you wrote that I want to read was uh, in Window Pane. You say, I felt the everyday paradox of perpetual change within rigid stillness. Right. And and that reminded me of um reminded me of Cezanne talking about how he paints landscapes and every time you look down and look up it's a it's a new landscape. Right. Or Catherine yeah. Murphy and how she obsessively sets up these still lives in certain places all around her property and she only goes to that one window set up on a gray day at mm. 12 p.m. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I I was wondering um i guess the the best way to start this is how do you how do you start a painting like when because i'm looking at your work and and the images that you sent me to to look at again after mm-hmm. i wasn't in front of them were you know high def so i was searching all around and and i was wondering like is it do you start by the the common kind of like okay find the composition or oh like actually starting it's so funny because i actually don't even think of how I start the painting. Like, I don't even know if I remember. I mean, sometimes I start with the object. Sometimes I start, I think I usually start with the object kind of plopped in the middle. But for me, like starting the painting uh, is really about the object and the colored surface that it's sitting on. Do you start paintings and, or do you have a bunch of different choices for? Right. Because these paintings look like they take a while to make because they take a while to see all these things. So all these questions I yeah. have is like, I, I kind of, you're presenting this thing is like, this is, this is it. Right. And, and where for me, it's like the, um, a lot of that happens before I pick up a paintbrush or even start on the canvas. It's the object, which I feel like a lot of it is not making very many quote decisions. Uh, because the object usually is something I find and it just feels like come into my life or sometimes I seek it out, but it's like a man-made object that I did not make. Um, and then from there, it's a very intuitive process of um, what color is the object and do I want to manipulate the color? And then from there, um, I'm responding to that color with what color do I put it on in the background? And there's a lot of um, preparation that goes into setting these things up in a way that sometimes don't feel like um, decisions, but more like physical responses based on intuition or memory or, um, yeah, there's not a lot of like cerebral, rational thought there. Um, and then, so yeah, those those things get decided in the beginning. And for me, it's like, the more I can, like I always tell my students, like the more you can like, resolve within the still life and your composition and your thumbnail, the less, you know, and the less kind of um, editing that you have to do in the painting, the better. Because once I sit down and start painting, it's almost like reading a book. Like it just, uh, you know, and this kind of brings us to that Agnes Martin article that we've been reading and which has been really resonating with me. Um, 
Yeah, let's talk about that because y'all sent us that, and um, and I think something Dustin said in the first segment about uh, Rachel, your paintings looking minimal, and this goes for Dustin as well. I think uh, like them looking minimal, or you could put them in the category of minimalist painting, but like like Agnes Martin, like they're very much not they're y'all aren't minimalist you wouldn't fall into that school of painting right right mm-hmm. like when people want to put her in that well people like donald judd want to put her into mm-hmm. that category but she's very much not that thing and i think she herself even was well, like no talks... i'm an abstract expressionist and if anything she talks about this is something i i've been really excited to rediscover with her she talks about classicism which i think is something we we kind of are both sharing um it's not eclectic Right. It's not eclectic. It's not based on these personal decisions um, and more about the ideal of perfection or these memories of perfection in the world. Um, And so I think in that way, it's this classical type of working. And then I think for both of us, um, you know, there's this trafficking in like generalities. So when I look at, you know, again, going back to like still life painting in general, like as usual, um, it's about like that lemon on this table with this vase in that particular light. And I feel like with Dustin, it's more about like lemons in general and Bibles in general, as opposed to this particular Bible and this particular piece of fruit. And the same way, like I'm interested in setting up these situations with objects that don't have a lot of identity on their own or specificity, but then paradoxically, it's incredibly specific about this particular thing and this light and this color on this surface at this time of day. So, um, yeah, and that, yeah. In in terms of my paintings, with that, it's it's not even it's not this specific lemon, but it's like this specific painting that right. you're looking at yeah. using a lemon. A lemon is a means to an end, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like a means to an end in the same way that I think, yeah, my objects, it's more of a, it's philosophical, but then it's it's also just experiential. And I guess going back to that Agnes Martin um, text, uh, you know, she talks about what you need to do as an artist. She's talking to these young artists. Um, You need to have this process where you think um, through this work, I see myself and I free myself. And so, um, or or the idea of discipline, um, not thinking, planning, or scheming is a discipline. Um, and I guess this isn't exactly the philosophical component, but um, for me, it's like setting up these situations where in the process of painting, it becomes isolated and um, what I'm painting has more to do with like um, my own subjectivity and the particular point of view of this object, um, like kind of exhausted through painting, like exhausted of everything I can see in it um, through my own really unique point of view. Um, I, I talked to, so I guess it's a lot about perception if it's, if it's, if that's, that's the philosophical aspect of it. Um, yeah. And it, it's meditative too. Like I, f- I feel like it's like everything that you're saying, I feel like there's a generosity in that act. Mm-hmm. It's not, um, it doesn't feel like labored in a sense of, you know, how like a, a performance artist, you might 
think like, oh, you're really exhausting yourself mm-hmm. and us. And we feel that exhaustion. Like mm-hmm. this doesn't feel exhausted. Oh, that's great. I like that. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Like it feels like it's, it's a amalgamation of perception. Mm. And that's another question I had for you in terms of, of the process of these paintings is, um, are you, are you painting the whole painting over and over and over again? Or are yes. you, cause there's so, yes. you know, there's these certain parts where I'm just like, Oh yeah, that, that little tiny spot right there. Uh-huh. Like, is this something yeah. that, that you found in that moment? And you're like, okay, I can't touch that. Or is it, you're not even thinking about um, that, the painting in pieces. I am. It's kind of changing the more I work on this body of work, like without getting too like technical and boring, like, you know, in the beginning, it's kind of like the way I'm working is an analogous, you know, the, the larger like process with each painting is becoming analogous to a single painting. Whereas like the more I make this body of work, the more I see each time I go to paint and the higher my standard or threshold is for seeing. So in the beginning, like with this painting you're looking at, that was slightly on the earlier side. And so I think I might've painted the orange stone in like one shot and maybe I repainted it. Um, Cause sometimes it's hard to just fix or change one section. So yeah, I will repaint it over and over again, or I'll change the color of the object and repaint it completely um, in a different color. Um, so you'll change the color of the object. I did that once. Okay. Yeah, I did that once and I don't hope, hope to not have to do that again, but I think the more times I have to go over it, it has this accumulation of energy, um, you know, that sometimes can be a positive thing. But yeah, in this case, I think I painted that quote background a couple different times. And yeah, it, when I was kind of forming that question, it, it made me think of Thomas Noskowski, who I think he said, or I read somewhere, I'm, I'm not really sure, that when he paints his paintings, he's painting the whole painting every time. Like everything is yeah. a little bit wet. And you have yeah. see these paintings that are like 10 years old. Oh, wow. And they're not super thick or anything, but it's this way of, I think he was talking about it, where it keeps your, it keeps him focused on the whole thing. Yes. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find The People Radio wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The People Radio. Yeah, go to your favorite podcatcher and search for The People Radio. Uh, subscribe to the show. Uh, like us, leave us a review if it's that sort of thing. We really appreciate it. Also, if you could tell a friend, if there's anyone you know who you think might like the show, let them know. That really helps us out. And now back to our conversation with Rachel Roski and Dustin Metz. So to go back to the your lemon painting, there was something I've been thinking about because the lemon, it's like floating in the middle of the um, canvas and it's almost like this apparition or a saint and it has this light of its own, which I love how it's only visible at the four corners, which again, like acknowledges and goes back to like the rectangle and the object of the the painting as an object. Um, but I was also thinking that, you know, it's like splayed open like a crucifix, like a crucifixion, it's cut in half, it's dying. It's also that black background, like I think of what is that 
do. Like the black, it's like this non-image um, where the picture's not, you know, like a movie theater. Like it's where we're not looking. Like it's a non-image. Um, but I also think of like this superhero effect, like the floating in the center of this black, you know, movie theater you know, you can do anything in a painting. And so this idea of like, what can you make happen in a painting that can't happen in real life? And so, but it's funny. I think it's a funny part of your work where it's this like, you know, lo-fi pyrotechnics or like superhuman mundane, you know, it's like a lemon. It's not like making anything exciting happen. Um, Or I also think it also brings me this idea of like the, like a Catholic version of Cezanne or something like this, like glorified, like, saint apparition um so yeah and then along with your bible paintings i just think about like what or the the thrift store painting you have in your studio that's disassembled that was a crucifix um so i'm just curious like where that ties into your process or thinking um religious painting or religion in general yeah so um i grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten to eighth grade. Um, and so, and my, my parents aren't religious, you know, they sent me there cause they went there and they went to church while we were there. But as soon as I got to high school, it was, you know, everybody for themselves and they didn't really go to church and none of us went to church after that. So it wasn't like a, you know, fundamentalist, like weight on me, but it was the time in my development where, magical thinking and real you know like understanding how the world worked you know when you're in a when you're when you're in a religious school and that's happening and they're teaching you religion as fact it Mm. kind of developed i think it developed my brain in this way where i could get to magical thinking a lot easier and it, it was broken open in high school where i started you know maybe a little bit before high school but around that time questioning like oh wait a second these are all just stories. So then, it, you know, I, I could have, I could access that kind of juvenile, my juvenile brain and how it believed in this, this uh, religious magical thinking, for lack of a better word. And then when it comes into painting is, for me, this love of historical, you know, like uh, religious painting, because they really were, they were, really believed, you know, like El Greco and Titian and and anybody you name, you know, in the before 1600, you know, to some degree they believed. And even if they didn't believe they were, their whole like job was to like make this magical painting. Or most of the history of art. Yeah. Yeah. Like 95% of it has been religious. Yeah, exactly. And so there's this belief that turns into an aesthetic that I really respond to. And it took me a while to get there. It took me, cause I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't access that um, because I, I wasn't religious anymore. So I couldn't, you know, I had to like cut it off and now I had to just find my other, my own thing. And so it kind of started by wanting to paint still lives as a way, you know, I think when I first moved to California, it was just after grad school, I was kind of emptying my brain of all of the grad school bullshit um, and trying to find something new. And I started by, you know, that mundane thing of like just painting still lives. And that started also from looking at Cezanne and Bonnard and, you know, Matisse and 
all these artists who were just painting like the Mirandi. crap in their Mirandi, the crap in their studio, and I was just like enthralled by it. So then I thought, well, I I can paint the crap in my studio and try and make a good painting out of that. Like, how do I make a how do I make a painting that's like perverse out of just like the material in my studio as kind of a project or like not yeah. even a project, but like a, a way of generating images. And it's so interesting because, yeah, it's just I don't think I've ever seen still life painting done that way where it's like a still life painting that is. Yeah, it contains these, like, yeah, like I said, lo-fi pyrotechnics are, like, these metaphysical, yeah. superhuman. I'm thinking of the one painting in your studio of, like, the, f- like, plate of fruit floating in the sky that looks like a Tiepolo ceiling mm-hmm. fresco or something, and it's, but it's a plate of fruit. Yeah. To go back to yet another Merlin James quote. That makes me think of you. Um, this idea of humor, because some of these moves are kind of funny. And so it's hard to, I, I guess, sometimes I wonder if there's a certain amount of like tongue in cheek or irony. Um, and so John Yao writing about Merlin James says that intellect and pleasure, seriousness and humor are bonded together. And I feel like this applies, yet it's like this humor is the one adjective that I can't like pinpoint in the work um except for this idea which is a whole other topic that i think you're doing something that like extracts the seriousness out of the paintings um and there's a sense of play and even the way you display them um i think it gets it takes away something of like the like walter benjamin like the aura of the painting you know they become these they i i think they function more like books in a way where they're you know, lent out and displayed on the ground or up at the top of the wall or on a table. Um, so there's this kind of like irreverence. But I just wonder, like, are you trying to be funny in terms of those moves within the paintings? Or is there like an irony or a detachment or like, is yeah, that self-conscious? It comes from one of the other ways that I'm I'm constantly questioning the the work that I do is, or or trying to use the questioning in a um, productive way is to make the wrong decision. So that's kind of where the middle composition came from. Like never put something in the middle. Right. So how do I make a painting? Which I'm doing too. <laughs> yes. How do we make a painting where it's just in the middle and it's yeah. still um, compositionally and just? Well, it's kind of an anti-composition. Right. Um, so it's it comes from the idea of of going towards the wrong thing and making it right through the act of painting. So the humor comes from this wrongness, or like maybe it's the uncomfortability of like, oh, like this is this is just a lemon. Mm. It's almost like I want you to acknowledge that it's a painting of a lemon and how that's ridiculous, and then be sucked into the seriousness of how I'm painting it and like how seriously I'm taking it. And then as right. you're leaving, you look over your shoulder and you're like, oh, that was just painting a lemon, though. Right. So it's this, that's where the humor kind of comes in. It is more of like an irreverence or something. Is but it... I really want to, like, I kind of, I want to push back against the aura part because I love aura. So with huh. the aura and irreverence, what about the paintings of the Bible? Yeah. Oh, Tell right. Tell us about those. Bible. Um, so, yes, it, it started uh, from when I was thinking about, you know, just things to paint. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll paint it. How would I make, how would I make a painting of a book that's interesting? 
And I thought, well, it could be the Bible. And I was like, oh, shit, that's that's too <laughs> loaded. I would have to really have like strong opinions about how I felt about the Bible and religion and Catholicism and Christianity. And then I, I sat on it because it made me so uncomfortable for like two years. And finally, I had nothing else to paint in my studio. And I was like, well, I could do the Bible. And I thought, if I paint it really big, then I really can't hide from it. I really have to um, confront all the feelings I have of it that I don't even know I could articulate before I painted it or maybe even after I painted it. So I set up this problem where I had uh, the largest painting I could fit in my studio at the time, um, and it would just be the Bible. And through that um, setup, I was able to then kind of just like follow my intuition of how to kind of, I, I related a lot to the way that you're painting these still lives, is kind of just always coming back to the painting and be like, mm-hmm. is this, not is this worth it, but is this giving me something? Is it um, not talking back to me? It's not, I didn't want to know. It's almost like every time I thought I felt a certain way, I would push it, I would push against that. I would try and heighten it and it would get too heightened and I would cross the line and I'd back it up. And so it kind of comes to this spot where um, I I wanted the Bible to be both... um, awe-inspiring in its kind of size and low and I wanted it to be um, kind of frightening but also kind of stupid because it was just a painting of a bible mm-hmm. and I wanted to um, as I was thinking about this and I was I was making it I was thinking like okay so I'm making a big painting of a bible that I really you know like and I know that paintings get sold and to, you know who buys them and I as I was painting it I was thinking I don't want this to go at the time, I was like, I don't want this to go to Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. but I also don't want it to go to Bill Maher, <laughs> you know, because I think they're the same same coin, just different sides. Right. So I didn't want it to be, I wanted it to sit somewhere in the middle where it was subversive in both places. And I guess the way I, I read it, I, I remember you'd mentioned Robert Gober in your studio, and I was thinking you somehow because I didn't go there looking at that Bible painting. I'm more thinking about, like, the funny um, painting of of the shallow rectangle on top of another shallow rectangle that has, you know, the side of it painted to look like the Bible. And you somehow, in the same way with the Robert Gober, uh, he has these, like, archetypes, but they're not... They become intensely personal mm-hmm. and coded and... I don't think the Bible is exactly coded for you, but it becomes intensely personal and poignant and not really about all the symbolism that that thing usually contains in everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's... Yeah, well, so you're talking about the smaller Bibles I've been painting. So I had the, the first Bible oh, was, the big one. Yeah. was the big one. Yeah. Um, and the little ones kind of came, again, from this idea of like, okay, so I did a big Bible it kind of just sticks out as a, in a as a sore thumb in, this, in a studio visit. It kind of even like taints everything <laughs> it's around It's like a Bible it. poster. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and I, I like that about it. I like that it kind of like taints everything and you kind of have to read everything a little bit differently because of it. Um, but then when, uh, when I wanted to make another one, I didn't want to make a larger one. I wanted to see if I could 
have the same offness, the uncomfortability, the subversiveness in a small Bible. And that's when I painted the one where it was, you know... Uh, it's almost life-size. More life-size. Yeah. It's more yeah. life-size, and then the sides are painted as if it were a book, the sides of the right. canvas. So it does this doubling effect. And then I have it sitting on a piece of plexi, black plexi, that mirrors it again. Right. So it's kind of like this... You Another know. thing we have in common is like the sides of the paintings. Yeah, yeah we have sides <laughs> of the paintings. Uh, Rachel, your paintings often, or a lot of them, the recent ones, have a lot of text on the edges. Yeah, so like I started doing this years ago um, when I was spending a lot of time with a pencil drawing on the surface of the canvas, and I felt like it was like writing on the prison walls of these hours that I'm locked up with this painting, and it's like scruffy or you know, just what's what I'm thinking about and like the mental anguish or whatever, like, you know, the flip side of the front of the painting. Um, You know, and I'm also thinking about like, it's this kind of bonus that you get to see um, in person, like Dustin's like built up surface where it's this thing that you really don't see in reproduction in photographs. Well, unless people take pictures of the sides. Um, I don't usually photograph it. Right. Don't I never photograph it. and so it's this bonus and acknowledging, you know, like emphasizing the three-dimensionality uh, of the painting. I've started realizing it's it's kind of opened up into this other um, dimension that, you know, I think of this painting as having five sides, right? Like the front is kind of thinking about like how sometimes as women we go through the world with this like physical presence and like a you know a certain amount of objectification happens um and the the kind of side where you put your makeup on <laughs> and then the 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 external sides are are more of like the diary the thing that's like locked up at home or behind the face or whatever you know the physical part that as a woman you can be at certain times more aware of that presence in the world um and so i think of it as like these it's a very like different kind of space than the front of the painting that that I like to think of as very like um constructed and then the sides are very uh first person narrative um this idea that uh the first person narrative this kind of diary especially as um coming from a woman's voice has this certain amount of um different kind of presence that I was used to be kind of afraid of and I'm trying to embrace these things that I you know I was told as a as a woman as a girl in art school like you shouldn't do like you got to paint big to be taken seriously you have to make your giant paintings and when you write an artist statement you never use the first person you always make it third person and then people take you more seriously and all these things you're supposed to do to be taken seriously including this idea of objectivity and the the first person diaristic narrative that happens on the sides is definitely like the other side of that. Well, Rachel, Dustin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank yeah, you thanks. guys for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. This was fun. You've been listening to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find The People anywhere where you find podcasts. Just search for The People Radio. Also, remember that we're on the Instagram. Find us there. We're the underscore people underscore radio. So go there. Like a bunch of stuff. Uh, Keep up with what we're doing. Absolutely. Do that. And uh, our interstitial music, as always, is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. 
And we're gonna go out now with a bunch of tracks from LA band Scubs. Uh, Scubs is David Reich, Brian Ramish, and Dave Page. sunglasses just out the window.
goddamn sunglasses off. Take the goddamn sunglasses Damn off. Damn it, man. Simple Simon-ass motherfuckers. Thank <laughs> you.